Hi, everyone. Good evening, and welcome to our quarterly Female Founders Fund panel. Uh, I'm going to start off by having our panelists join us, um, Jen, Gina, and Hillary. So why don't you guys come up and take a seat? Um, so I'm going to start off by giving you a little bit of background on Female Founders Fund. Um, so Female Founders Fund is an early stage fund investing in technology companies started by women um, based here in New York. We've been around now for about six years and invested in a variety of different companies, um, some of which you may know. So uh, companies like Zola, Maven Clinic, um, Tala, Rent the Runway, Billy, CoStar, and Kin, actually. Um, and so, you know, what we have looked to do is not only provide investment to companies started by women, but also to really develop a community and ecosystem that highlights um, some of the incredible work and some of the incredible companies that are being started by women, not only here in New York, but across the country. So the objective of these panels is, is really to provide an opportunity for, for you all to learn more about um, the story behind some of these brands and, and businesses that are being started by um, by the women up here today. So to start off, um, would love for all of you to just tell us a little bit about um, yourselves and your companies. So would you like to start? Sure. Hi, I'm Hillary. I'm the founder of Sweet Reason, which I hope you got to enjoy this evening. If not, I think it's in the back. Um, I was, I, I grew up in the food industry, uh, my family's in the food industry, and live, I live in Toronto. Um, I was w working in food, doing something called a search fund in Toronto before Sweet Reason, um, which is basically a, a, I guess, a mini form of private equity and where you go and look for a small business to buy, but instead of being on the board like you are in private equity, you actually run the business, which was appealing to me. Um, and then I, in the summer of 2017, fell in love with cannabis beverages and uh, the idea of cannabis beverages. I had never had one, but I knew that the, as the market was legalizing in Canada, um, it, I just couldn't resist the idea of them, I guess, and was annoying my friends and family enough when talking about it that um, I started to get serious about thinking about starting a cannabis beverage company. And then... That fall, I learned about CBD and all the health benefits of CBD, um, and especially as they pertain to anxiety, I thought that it was something, an ingredient that it was super important to bring to the masses. And I think the best way to do that is through beverage. So Sweet Reason was born. We're a hemp and cannabis beverage company. We launched with CBD sparkling water, but CBD is really just the beginning, so. Great, yeah. thanks. Hello, I'm Gina, um, one of the three founders of Yola Mescal. Um, if you don't know about us, Yola is actually a person, and she's a lovely woman whose entire family is Oaxacan, which is where Mescal is derived from. Um, about 12 years ago, she inherited her grandfather's farm. He was a little pioneer in the Mescal making early, one of the first villages that ever had Mescal. About 300 years ago is where he was born, and in his retirement started making many different recipes. So about 12 years ago, she came back to Mexico City and she inherited his farm and she started one of the first mescalerias in Mexico City. Um, I met her there then. And I also met my other partner around that time about just over a decade ago. Her name's Leaky Lee, she's a Swedish singer. 
uh, the three of us started a kind of wild friendship and a lot of trips to Oaxaca, a lot of mezcal drinking. And you couldn't find it here or in LA, which is where I was living in both these cities. And um, I was obsessed with mezcal and I was obsessed with the spirit of it and Mexico and uh, the people and the process of making it and how wonderful it feels to drink it and how different it is. So um, about four or five years ago, we kind of started talking seriously about the absence of mezcal in America and as well just the absence of a female voice in liquor. Um, now, thankfully, there's a lot of amazing companies that are coming out um, that are female vision but, or female, female, from female gaze, but uh, at the time it was kind of like, you know, you always saw a, a man with his big watch and his big leather chair drinking his scotch and a girl in a red dress, you know, needing someone to buy her a drink. But we were not that type of girl and we were buying our own drinks. So um, we just wanted to kind of put together this concept that, you know, uh, women wanted strong drinks that were clean and natural and they wanted to be able to take care of themselves. And on the Mexican front, Yola was also kind of revealing to us that the majority of people in these rural villages in Oaxaca are women. Most of their sons are getting work in cities and it's a very patriarchal setup and the father, the husband, or the man of the village usually collects wages and then disperses them. And um, she didn't have a massive interest in launching an American brand, but she did have an interest in helping her Oaxacan uh, roots and people of her, you know, her original place. And so one of the things that she thought would be the most impactful was to set up an all-female balling facility and pay women directly. And that became kind of the battle cry for our brand, is kind of promoting economic independence and equal pay. Awesome. Hi, guys. I'm Jen Batchelor. I'm the CEO, Chief Euphorics Officer of a company called Kin Euphorics. I'm also the creative director at All. We just celebrated one year today. Today is our birthday. Ooh, wow. <laughs> Thank you. It feels crazy to say that. Um, feels like we've been around forever. It feels like I've been working on this forever. And in many ways, I have. I've um, been in the liquor business or alcohol libation business since I was eight years old. Um, yes, child labor is real. Um, I have a bit of an unconventional path to beverage. My father was a moonshine bootlegger by uh, night. Um, that was his hobby, but also his primary way of uh, gaining uh, livelihood for our family. He was an aircraft mechanic working for an airline called Saudia, which, yes, is based in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, which is still under prohibition today. Um, so I was there for a decade with him and my mom, um, and we had a very adventurous time together in that decade of um, really what I remember uh, most of building community. So it wasn't just about the money. It wasn't just about doing something sort of provocative and being a vagabond and um, everything that's sort of associated with the idea of a bootlegger. It was very much that it was a family of 3,500 Westerners living on a compound trying to retain their... Uh, home traditions. And so to me, it just showed how important that connective bond is um, and how powerful socializing over something that brings you together and closer with your kin, with the people that you see across the bar and you recognize as your brother or sister, uh, despite your DNA connection, um, 
how powerful that is and how how often that can remind us of home and really then become home for us, um, which is really important to, to people that are 5,000 miles away from their biological families, which we all were. Um, so that was my introduction. And then fast forward, moved to the US in 2001, um, which was uh, quite jarring for a family of um, folks from the aviation world, as you can all imagine. And I ended up entering into the world of storytelling and community building through marketing and ended up building uh, myself a little company around uh, wellness hospitality, which sort of the convergence of the trade and the idea of a, a lifestyle boutique property that was sort of catering to new whims and interests um, and, and lifestyles really. And merging that kind of idea, the, the artistic, the chic, the standard hotels, the ace hotels, um, that were sort of lacking a more conscious option for their guests my company would come in and, and build those in room, on menu. Um, we sort of strategize with the sales, marketing, and ops teams to develop that. And one of the things that I noticed in that process was so many people were opting for these wellness experiences. Um, but at the end of the day, they were sort of getting distracted and wowed by the city. They were, even though they were traveling for business, they really wanted to experience the city, right? They wanted to pretend like they were tourists. And the first thing that the hotel would help them do is drink alcohol, of course. The hotel lobby bar is in the lobby of all places where you check in and you do all the things that require transit in and out of the space. Um, and so it's very tempting to do that. And and for me, it was no judgment. It was just my co-founder and I, um, Matt Cobble, who actually comes from uh, food pedigree, food and beverage pedigree as well. He was a co-founder of Soylent, um, so he knows a thing or two about disrupting um, the food space from uh, the, the perspective of uh, the consumer, right? So they're direct to consumer. And so is Ken. We're very focused on the consumer experience and what you guys are telling us you need at any given moment, what you want more out of from your social rituals. And so that's what we're looking to, to deliver every single day is this idea of conscious consumerism and conscious connection. We're seeing a divergence around the idea of farm to table. We were being more and more and more conscious about what we're eating, what we're consuming um, from our food, in terms of our food, our well-being, we're investing a ton in supplements, et cetera, et cetera. Then we're sort of washing it down the drain at the end of the night. Or on the flip side, thinking that we're super connected, right? We're the most connected generation uh, of all time, and yet we feel more lonely than ever. World Health Organization just announced that we're experiencing an isolation crisis globally. What does that even mean? When I started to look at the stats on this stuff, it's like 44% of the people that are saying that they're lonely are actually married and have partners at home. That's crazy. When I think about loneliness, I think about a person sitting in a room by themselves, and like crying to themselves, but they're not. They're actually, you know, a, a lot of them are, are, are partnered up. And so for me, it was about creating more opportunities for people to gather consciously and on their terms and to reduce the stigma of choosing sobriety or choosing to stay conscious and elevated during a social experience. Um, so that's what we look to deliver with our drinks. Yesterday we launched our second product in the line, which is called Dream Light. Um, it's designed for uh, to be the last sip of enjoyment, sort of your nightcap of, of the evening, and it really helps you get the best sleep of your life. I can attest to that. Um, we just launched yesterday, and I'm still sitting here alive talking to you guys. So that says something for all the founders in the room. You know what I'm talking about. Um, but really excited to be here. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Thanks Jen. Um, so Hillary, let's start with you. Um, you talked a little bit about your interest in CBD. Now, taking that interest and translating it into a product, I'm sure, was challenging. Um, so tell us a little bit more about what that looked like and, um, and how you went about it. 
Oh my God, it's such a hard question to answer. Uh, we had a crazy journey. We, um, I mean, I feel like you hear that from every founder, <laughs> so maybe it all sounds the same. It's a wild ride. Um, but in, I guess the main craziness in ours was that uh, we were meant to launch in Toronto in the Canadian market, and a month before our launch, the business became illegal. Um, so we had to shut everything down and restart basically everything from scratch, a new manufacturer, every single supplier, except for the bottle, every supplier switched. Um, we had to get a new team, like new supply, everything was brand new. So it, it was obviously heartbreaking. Uh, I guess that was six, seven months in. But we were, it really ended up being a, a blessing in disguise, coincidentally within the same 48 hours the U.S. market opened up when they announced that the farm bill would pass, <laughs> and that took a while, but it happened. So it ended up being, like, it, we've had a wild ride, but everything that's happened has really been a blessing in disguise, which is great, or at least that, that might just be my attitude towards it at this point. But, um, yeah, I would say the hardest part about it and a part of the journey was just changing, everything changing all the time. Like, you know, it's always three steps forward and five steps back. And it, uh, so that that is always difficult. And the, the building the resilience that that takes to endure that was probably the hardest part. But I'm, I'm happy to talk in any more detail about any part of the process of creating a beverage company, but I could go on long rants there. <laughs> um, thank you. So um, Gina, you know, the story you told was was really fascinating. Um, but again, along the same lines, I'm sure developing a product and figuring out how to distribute it in the United States was was not easy. Um, and you know, you had partners that you worked with, but um, but would love to hear, you know, kind of what that experience was like, any insights um, about it. Well, very, very similar to you. Um, Within about six months after our lunch, Trump got elected. <laughs> so <laughs> we had a hiccup. It was like, there's a wall that's going to be. I mean, I lost so much sleep um, just because it felt, yeah, I mean, there were so many, obviously, emotions around that, but just wanting to start this business and wanting it to be successful and being so excited about it and having brought in capital from friends to get our first pallet over the border, you know. Um, just the long, hard road of getting that done and then feeling like, oh no, there could be some crazy tax that happened. You know, there's just government issues with importing liquor um, or importing anything. So that was really scary, but uh, we, I, th I think if you're passionate and you're ready to just go all the way with something, you find a way to overcome those things and also use those hurdles or potential hurdles or fears of hurdles to kind of stimulate something else. And I think that really kind of bonded us um, in terms of, you know, what our mission was and, and crystallized it even more because it made us feel like we, we don't have time to just throw parties for the sake of throwing a party anymore. It, suddenly every single thing we did to launch the brand and to hype the brand and to promote the brand was centered around a mission that was driven toward activism and bringing people together for the purpose of change or bring, bringing people together for the purpose of, you know, um, galvanizing around things that we cared about and organizations that we wanted to promote and, you know, raise money for. So that became a really exciting part of launching the company in a way. That was just 
the one hurdle I remember feeling very scared that you reminded me of. I'm sure there were many others too. No, there were many, many others. I mean, I could go into like logistics and supply chain, but I feel like that's not that interesting for this. We can talk, pull me to the side. I'll tell you about cogs and (laughs) seal wraps with mezcal, which is like the craziest, most strongest, you know, liquor out there. So it burns through everything. Um, paper. So anyway, but yeah, that stuff is not as Paper bigotry. Yeah. I first tasted Yola at the Women's March. What was that? I first tried Yola at the Women's March. Woo! So you did good. <laughs> and then we got to collaborate. With That's right. Yeah, that was fun. Um, thanks so much. So Jen, um, I think, you know, I'm assuming one of the challenges that comes with creating a new category in the beverage space is education. Um, and euphorics is obviously a, a newer term. Um, and so what has that process been like in terms of um, particularly, you know, using direct-to-consumer as your, your primary channel? What, is, what has that experience been like in terms of um, educating people on the importance of, of euphorics and, and what exactly the product is? Great question. Um, It's been the journey of a lifetime, frankly. Like We had to become the best storytellers, the best artists, the best creatives. Because at the end of the day, we knew that our logo, the way that we use language, color, uh, was going to be such a huge signal to our audience that this is for you. We are making this for you. We are elevating. We are evolving. We are doing literally everything we can in our power um, to be as resonant with ourselves, because frankly, we are making our product for us. Um, My team is very reflective of who our consumer base is. Um, But also that we're here for joy and we're here for a legacy. we really, really, truly believe that our generation was due for a complete shakedown. Um, not of alcohol. I think I, I, that's one thing I wanted to make really clear here is that we're not at war with one ingredient. Um, but I am on an all-out crusade with the system that tells me that I have to drink my male counterpart under the table to be powerful or um, that I have to drink on a first date to make things comfortable for my potential partner. I hate all of the so- those societal constructs, so it was very much um, you know, about creating and expressing that mission through the brand and the story. And on the education front, being that we are using nootropics and adaptogenic herbs and functional botanics and all of these things that I found find incredibly interesting, um, being that I have background in Ayurvedic herbology and that my partner is a bioengineer, like there's so much to this that we love um, that we know goes over everyone's heads sometimes, especially when they're just like, I just want to try it. Just what does it feel like? Just give it to me. <laughs> we want to make it as accessible and as easy for people to digest, um, both physically and mentally. And so it was very much about saying, look, we're calling this category euphorics. There's a lot of intention behind that. When you look at the etymology of that word, it literally breaks down to to be well within, right? Just to be well within, to be well with oneself. Um, it was actually coined by physicians in the early 1700s, and it was used to denote in the medical paperwork the moment when a patient went from being ill to being well after administrated uh, medicine or regimen. And so we use that word so often, it's so bastardized, right? We say, we're euphoric, and we're like, hi, we're out of our minds. But that's actually not euphoros, that's ecstasis. And the etymology of that word is to be outside oneself. Very different. 
polar opposite experiences. And when we realized this generation was ready to be well within and to be more conscious and to be standing on their two feet and they were doing breath work and meditation, they were getting it. Um, we knew that we wanted to be the drink of this generation. And so just that mission and expressing that through everything we do has resonated. Um, and it intrigues people. It begs the next question. And when it does, we're ready to answer it. That's great. Um, going back to your earlier point around branding, um, I think all three of you have done a great job in um, really using branding to, to tell the story. Um, how, how have you guys thought about developing the brand that... Um, you know, ultimately is is really the first thing that consumers will see before they even try the the product. Sure. Um, I mean, I got into this, as I said, because I was curious about cannabis beverages, and to me, the the thing that would break the stigma uh, or work on the stigma of cannabis beverages the the most uh, was going to be a beautiful brand. So it was always like that was in the early days other than in product development, that was like the number one thing I spent all of my time on and was the most fun part of the pre-launch dream process. Um, and I, I, so I think it, it, and the reason it needed to be beautiful was so that people felt like, oh, this is an ingredient that belongs in my everyday life and it's, it's not foreign. Um, I, I think like when I got into the space, you know, most of my competitors and also most cannabis beverages on the market two years ago were branded in a way that was very like, tr you know, old school pot branding, if you will, um, which has changed a lot in the last year even. But, and there were a lot of like, you know, half naked women on skateboards and like just, the, just like very odd branding to me. So there was never any like beverage that I would personally buy and consume. So I really, I mean, like Jen said, like I, I created the beverage for myself and something that I found really beautiful. And I think um, that is, it was like the only way I knew how to start the company was this is something that I would drink and this is something I would buy. And that, that was both the brand, but also the way we formulated the product, how we thought about like the, the whole company. Like we, we have no sugar or sweeteners and simple ingredients. We're one of the only CBD beverages on the market to have that. That was really important to me. Like it was always important that we would create something that I would personally drink all day, every day, that I would be personally such a big fan of, which sounds like you, you two are both aligned with that. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so anyway, back to branding. It, it was really like, it was just something I cared a lot about making really beautiful, but it was what I thought was beautiful, and I just hoped everybody else thought it was beautiful. Um, they do. So By the I way, Hillary, works. this happens all the time. You did an out-of-home campaign this summer with the quotes, the mantras, yes. and my friends were posting it and not share, not tagging Sweet Reason, and I was like, you better tag that. <laughs> it's expensive out-of-home. Oh, it, yeah, it was beautiful. Out-of-home. Too pricey for us. <laughs> Maybe not again. <laughs> I hear you. Great. Thank you. Sheena? Um, yeah, so branding. Well, you know, Leaky, Yule, and I, it, start, it was a friendship, and we bonded over many things. We bonded over food and travel and aesthetics and um, design, and each of them have their specific... We all came from very different places, Mexico, Sweden, and I'm from California, um, kind of from hippie parents in Ojai. But we all had this sort of synonymous outlook on things that we liked in the world and the way we wanted to consume and the way we wanted to live. So I think when we started talking about branding, it was important to us to 
make an object that we thought was beautiful and that was simple and that we wanted to see in our home and that we wanted to buy, uh, but also to have some kind of obvious nod to the heritage that is the recipe, which is from 1971. And we actually found a bottle in the original farm that um, we wanted to kind of replicate, but then Leaky being Swedish and the utmost minimalist on the planet, she wanted to give it this sort of like very severe, you know, Scandi sensibility. Um, so it's kind of fusing those two things, and I think that's what the brand is. I think it's a fusion of, you know, this heritage and history that is very much the land and the earth and the farm and the, this rural place, but also kind of our modern lives and how the, how this particular recipe, we had many recipes from our grandfather. We chose this one because at the time, like I said, five, six years ago, there were very few mezcals on the market. I really couldn't find any, and when you did find it, it was a really like low quality, kind of harsh, what you think of as the smoky, you know, any woman I talked to was like, I would never try mezcal, or the one time I did, it was a horrible experience. Or you'd find a really funky, weird, mushroomy, wild agave that, you know, also kind of was hard to adapt to. So this recipe is really special because of its combination of agaves, and we wanted to launch with that because now there's thousands of wonderful mezcals in the market, but at the time, you couldn't find that beautiful combination of something that you could drink every day in a city and all, all day long, every day, we enjoyed drinking it. Um, so that kind of, you know, mid-level but very high-quality connoisseur mezcal that's really rich and not watered down. And um, that was kind of what we wanted to put out first because we wanted people to learn about it. And I think that the branding needed to also be a fusion of all of those things, like a little bit of a, a memory of the past but also, like, our modern lives. And, um, and as much as we're women and we wanted to promote women, we're not conventional idea of the girliest girls. So we also wanted something that was kind of androgynous, which is kind of where we all feel like we fit. That's great. So I think, um, you know, one of the unique features of the alcohol or beverage industry is that it has um, really been run by very large companies, um, behemoths, one might say. And, and men. Um, yeah, and men. <laughs> um, and, um, and all these companies have massive marketing budgets. Um, and that's been kind of part of their um, strategy, you know, from day one is um, really winning through through dollars spent via marketing. And um, you know, all three of you are, are relatively young from a um, brand perspective, and and in some to some degree competing um, against these larger players. So, um, where where and how, um, quite frankly, have you found the opportunity to um, differentiate yourselves? We can start with Hillary. Um, I would say we've really we were really product focused from the beginning. Um, it and that, as I said, that meant like just creating something that we thought was amazing and that we would drink all day long and that was differentiated on how healthy it was and that it actually tasted good. Um, which is which was unique in the CBD beverage space. It's no longer now. There are many CBD beverages that taste great or good, um, I should say. Um, but I was being nice. Um, so we yeah, we were really product focused from the beginning. I wouldn't say like I never thought, and I still don't really think about differentiating myself versus the big companies. And I think it might be the same with. Um, the two of you, I sort of suspect it is, but I, we're building a category and doing something that's so new that I I, uh, I expect them to come. I hope they'll come knocking on my door one day, but I, I don't expect Coke to be launching a CBD beverage tomorrow. 
Um, so that's not the it, like I'm you know you you built in beverage. I think you have to always know that that would unlock a lot of growth for you um, because of their distribution systems mostly. So you have to always have that in mind. But it's if anything, I'm you know you build a business that it would be appealing to them one day, and so that you can say yes or no if that offer were ever to come along. Sure, that makes sense. I just think it's a totally new landscape in every industry. You know, I think people aren't as bought. I think people want to discover things. I think people want to feel that there's authenticity and that they're buying something that's meaningful and thoughtful and real and not churned out by some big corporate, you know, oh, craft is going on right now, so let's put a brown label on that. You know what I mean? You can smell that. You can even feel it through Instagram when something feels corporate and, and made up because there was somebody who did like marketing analysis on something. And I think, you know, liquor is in particular, and you guys have direct to consumer, which we don't, um, but liquor is very regulated and it's very, very owned by a very large, dark, weird world of like mafia-esque. <laughs> Luckily, I don't know, I kind of get excited by it all. It feels challenging, I have, I'm Italian. Um, <laughs> so it's kind of fun and scary. But um, I think that buyers are just like we all are hungry for truth, you know? And I think it's just, I think it's totally changing. And I think that yes, we're a little bit desensitized and detached, but I also think that people are on high alert for bullshit and um, you know, and I think if if you create enough of an excitement around what you're doing that gives people like hope, purpose, thoughtful, you know, makes them feel good for real and not just taste good, because I think we also came from an era of like chemical products, so everything, you know, it was about how it tasted, but people are actually starting to think about how things make them feel and adjusting to that, and I think that's such an important aspect for me about what what made me fall in love with mezcal. Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to other liquors that I think, you know, go right to my head, mezcal goes to my heart. That sounds really cheesy, but it's true. Like, I feel it in my body rather than, you know, a nerve high. Um, so I don't know. I think that we've gotten blessed because we've been really passionate and we are inspired by what we're doing. We will hit a roadblock, and we have, you know, as you grow. But um, it's also about making using the leverage of the new generation, which these we deal with a very massive distributor um, part of the time, and they they don't know how to talk to the people that we're talking to, and they don't know how to talk to women, and they don't know how to talk to like you know modern youth that are challenging norms. And I think that um, they're they kind of also realize that you know the leverage that we have because of that kind of alienation that they feel. You know, they're kind of shaking in their boots too. You know, um, so. I don't know, I've kind of used that as muscle here and there, which has been interesting to watch. Oh, that's great. Jen, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I think to to th even try to differentiate or, or spend dollar for dollar trying to compete with these guys is, is really not the point, especially with the category of euphorics and what we're building. It's like the people that are drinking kin are just not drinking Coke. They're just not. So that saves me the trouble of that. The other thing is we have some, a room of beverage entrepreneurs. You know, we went to, to market as a dietary supplement. So for us, even the even where we sit on shelves is a challenge and, and a creative one and a fun one with our, our different retail partners. Um, and so it also affords <laughs> us the opportunity the fact that we don't have to go, you know, through the th three-tier system of of alcohol, even though we're served at the bar, 
um, the fact that we do get to sell in a, in a wellness shop or a grocer that doesn't sell liquor, it, it leaves us the opportunity to, to go to market in a, in a very multifaceted way. And so we have a, an omni-channel approach where majority of our business is done direct to consumer, which is also just a natural differentiator for us. Um, you know, Coke has plenty of data around their marketing, but they don't have the f live feedback from their customers on a day-to-day basis. We're small, but we get thousands of emails a week. Um, and we're collecting all of that, and we're listening to all of that. Um, to case in point, with High Road, our first our first euphoric in the line, we launched it December fifth again last year. By January, people were started their New Year's routines, and they were telling us, "Look, I'm on Whole Thirty, and Whole Thirty says stevia and monk fruit are not approved." And we were like, well, "Screw it, we'll take it out." We don't need it. Why do we, if you're telling us you don't want it, we will take it out. And because we're tiny and because we work, work with manufacturers who dig what we're doing, we get to do that and we get to turn around the product to you in three weeks. That's building trust, faith, and confidence. Our, our audience, our customer base knows that we're applying the feedback that they're giving us almost in real time. And so that allows us to see retention rates go up. It allows us to continue building that trust with them so that you know, we end up developing the next three SKUs in the line from direct consumer feedback. We know we have a bevy of, of consumers that are ready to, to purchase, um, which is another thing that these big guys can't do. It takes them 18 months to roll something out. It took us three months to turn this can out, and we didn't even know we were doing a can this year. <laughs> it's not in our product roadmap. Um, so in that way, it's, it's really cool. And they're watching what we're doing because they know they're not as nimble, and in order to be, they have to acquire. Yeah, I know that's um, such interesting perspectives. Um, in terms of your distribution and your customer base, um, I'm assuming that um, for most of you, it's probably on the coasts, um, and you know, over time, we'll expand to other parts of um, of of the U.S. What is how do you think about that expansion? So, how do you reach that customer in kind of a tier two city? Um, you know, obviously, in some cases, direct to consumer takes care of that. But um, you know, generally, how do, how do you guys think about that? Yeah, uh, I mean, I think it's hard not to launch in New York and California because it, there's just it's like way easier to launch in New York and California, um, and just because of the market size and the demand for healthier products, I would say. So we are we launched in New York. We are just launching in California. Um, but we will go like to any state where there is demand, where there is a customer that we can sell to. We, we sell to distributors and then to retailers or direct to a retailer. Uh, so I, I would say it's only a matter of time. It's just easier to get proof of concept on the coasts. And then I'd also, but I'd also say, you know, as a category specific thing, if anybody's in the CBD space, that actually CBD is not a coast, not just a coastal thing, which is super interesting. I think in in the CBD category, um, there are a lot of people of like different, you know, in other generations, and just not at all who you would think is our target consumer that um, love CBD products, love sweet reason. I, I I like joke we target you know a millennial woman and. Uh, like the 60 plus year old golfing man really loves sweet reason. So, you know, you never know who you're like actually target versus who like really loves your product. Um, and I think that there a lot of the health benefits of CBD just pertain to a, a wide swath of the population. So I'm very hopeful that that will allow us to expand to some of the states that a lot of people don't focus on as much. Um, yeah. 
Mescal is still growing in terms of its education. Um, Yola, Leaky, and I have strong roots in cities that we care about, and we decided that initially we have such a small production, and we're growing on that, growing the production uh, because there is demand, thankfully. But um, you know, it's very artisanal; it's traditionally made. The labels are hand done by these women. They're crooked sometimes. You can you can check that. Um, so you know, it's taken us a while to even sort of establish what we've established, and now that we are expanding into other markets, we wanted to focus initially on places that were meaningful to us because those are the places that were showing up. And with such a you know, tiny, tiny um, group of people that is the company, and also with uh, you know, where Mescal is at, it was important that we physically were there. And so Sweden, oddly, is somewhere that we've launched, and Mexico City, obviously, and LA and New York are very much my home bases in a way, so that those places felt very honest to us. Um, and as we grow, we are going to expand. But what's interesting is we have ability to gather some data and we're seeing that people want it and they're ordering it in Colorado and in other you know mid Midwest states. So I do think that there is education growing and we also want to service anybody who wants it. So we're looking into how to do that. But it's more about you know making sure we can make it properly and have consistency. Totally. I mean, you know, again, we're direct to consumer, so we're not only available in all 50 states, we've sold into all 50 states by now and have been smuggled into eight countries that I know of, uh, which is telling and, and fun. We get a lot of traffic from Australia, and now Ireland is competing with Australia on how many people can see visit the site but not purchase anything, which has been interesting for us. Um, but it's exciting. No. Yeah, we don't ship internationally yet. Um, but yeah, we, we were seeing a lot of fun trends happen. I think in terms of expansion, it's not that we don't uh, want to. We're super eager to, to cater to these communities. Um, but it relies, you know, expanding means that we have to trust in people that can tell our story better than we can. Um, the education part of, uh, you know, introducing euphorics to, to burgeoning communities and folks that are really curious about this requires ambassadorship. It requires, um, you know, restaurateurs, bartenders, proprietors, shop owners um, to learn the product inside out. Um, and so we have an application process um, that we actually um, put wholesalers through just to see why do you care about the brand? Do you know why your consumer might want this or why your guests might want this? And so we go through that long process with them. We've been doing that all year. Luckily, we found 25 great partners um, across the country, actually. So we're available in, uh, in five states now. Um, Chicago being our most exciting. Um, you know, we're in 13 Foxtrots. I don't know if you guys know what that retailer is, but um, they're great to work with. I love them. Um, we're available at their cafe and, and on their shelves. And I've just been so blessed to have them as a partner because they they're reaching out to us to create content and to learn more and to you know collaborate on um, you know merchandising strategies and so um, it's so mutually beneficial you know once our product hits those shelves we don't know anything about what happens to it from there but uh, with a with a partner like theirs uh, or like them they actually turn around and provide us the data that we need uh, we actually got to survey one of their stores that they just opened in Dallas um, some of their customers and we found out that in fact the women that are drinking can there are 35 to 55 and they consider themselves you know college educated upper level management um, and they drink can because they want something 
um, you know, smarter at the end of the, a long day that they can enjoy uh, without regret. And that's verbatim over and over what we're hearing. So I was wondering if the sales reps were really just selling that point um, really well. And it's something that we never tried um, as a selling point on, on our channel. So it's, it's really fun to think about partnering um, and expanding in that way where we can almost learn more from the retailer than they can from us. Great, so um, last question for me and then we're gonna open it up for, for Q&A from the audience. Um, but, you know, I guess hearing your stories, all of you guys are really cutting edge in terms of addressing an opportunity and, um, and shaping it through the lens of, you know, where you see the customer need, um, which, you know, in, in these cases is personal. Um, and so in terms of trends that, um, that you're excited about um, in the beverage industry, you know, call it five, ten years from now, um, what, are, what are new things that, that you're seeing that you think um, have the ability to really shape the way that we drink? And I know it's an open-ended question, but there's so much happening, and so I'm just curious as to, to as to what is catching your attention. I'm really, <laughs> I'm, really <laughs> I'm really excited about the natural wine wave that's happening. I'm excited that mezcal is relevant. Um, I'm excited to see companies start to think more thoroughly about sustainability and about the ethos around how they package their goods and the lessening of plastics. Um, that's where I, that's the stuff I'm excited about. People just getting tapped into like what feels good and what's really properly made. Because also you can have all of the wellness products in the world, but if they're filled with chemicals, it's kind of backwards, right? It's like it's like 30 years ago, everybody talking about low calorie or non-fat. I mean, it's it's absurd, you know. So I think it's just uh, exciting that we're getting more and more natural. Mm. Or for lack of a better word, because somebody actually told me that natural's sort of mm. not a real <laughs> thing. thing. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> yeah, just more real, I guess. Yeah, totally. I think for me, well, besides euphorics, Yola Mescal and Sweet Reason, the most exciting things happening in beverage, I think, center around inclusivity um, and sustainability for sure. And I think it's just it just centers around consciousness again. Like we're we're just so much smarter about what we're putting in our bodies. We have so much more access to information and we're sharing so much quicker with each other, um, trying to help ourselves live our best lives. And we deserve that. And so um, one of the fun uh, conferences I got to attend this and last year is something called the Chicago Style. And it's a group of, it's actually three women um, from Chicago and New York um, supporting and advocating for fairness and kindness and consciousness behind the bar. And so it's something that uh, kind of goes unnoticed and it's sort of a thankless job, the service industry and, and hospitality in general. Um, but read any article about it and you'll, you'll learn, it doesn't take a ton of research, um, that it's, it's quite a, a gnarly industry. A um, lot of harassment, a lot of abuse. Um, and so, and just a lot of mindlessness. Um, and, and that might have to do with uh, habits around indulgence that render people if not unconscious, then um, certainly lesser versions of themselves in many in many instances. And so these are women that are trying to bring together activists and advocates for um, better treatment at work, um, better advocacy, especially for women bartenders, um, when there is an incident um, at, at the restaurant, and just trying to figure out better ways to run the industry as a whole. Um, 
you know, it, it just really makes me proud to see that this industry is so creative and so caring. Um, you know, I, I kind of saw myself as, as uh, a fringe outsider, given that I was creating this really wacky drink from the future that had no alcohol um, and might be less fun than the, the typical fare. Um, but they welcome me with open arms, and uh, and I'm noticing that the industry is is so excited for uh, another tool in their arsenal um, that they can afford somebody who's maybe a little shy to say that they're not drinking alcohol or um, you know doesn't want to be marked for the whole night with a tall boy glass and a black straw simply because they said I'm I'm the designated driver tonight or whatever myriad reasons you wouldn't drink. Um, and so it creates showmanship and an opportunity for a better hospitality experience, and it creates a better overall vibe um, for people when you have service folks and people in hospitality that are thinking in that way. And um, to me, that's that's the most exciting trend. I I would say I'm uh, I mean first of all like really excited about all functional beverages. I'm. Um, not someone that at all remembers to take a single supplement. And so it's really convenient for me to drink them because I do love a good beverage. Uh, and so as a lot of these things that we're told to take as supplements move into our beverages, like collagen and CBD and you know the, fun the rest of the functional beverage crew, um, it just makes those ingredients and the health benefits of those ingredients, I think, more accessible. And then, uh, the, secondly, and very obviously, I guess, um, I'm really excited about hemp and cannabis. I think, I mean, there's over 100 cannabinoids in, in, that you can extract from either hemp or cannabis. CBD is the star right now. THC is a close second. But um, they will be old news in five years, if not sooner. Uh, and so I think we internally are really excited about all of the health benefits of the hemp and cannabis plants. and really bringing them to consumers through beverage. That's great. Thank you, guys. Um, so we have time for a few questions. Um, Can I have a sweet reason before we start? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm serious. <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, yes, Thanks, uh, by Kelsey. the way, we have, um, we have samples of, of everything in the back. But um, before we do that, so we have time for a few questions. We have a big audience, so we're going to ask you uh, to limit yourselves to one question. And uh, who'd like to start? If you guys can raise your hand, we're going to run a mic to you. Right here. Thank you. <clears throat> hey, my name is Nirali. Hi, um, Nirali. Hi. <laughs> um, one of my questions is, how did you do your experimentation early on in the process when you were developing your product? And how did you change that throughout the way when you were really discovering who your customer was early on? I can take that. Um, for me, well, so the first obvious thing that um, we thought about when we wanted to create something that was worthy of um, a social occasion as esteemed as happy hour, uh, you know, we were kind of shocked that when people think about drinking, uh, their first thought is the liver. When in fact, what you're saying to me that you want when you're drinking at happy hour is to relax, we should be thinking about the endocrine system and how the hormonal system is well um, uh, in charge of our mood, more so than our liver and our brains. And so for me, it was very um, apparent that we had to work with ingredients that were going to nourish the brain and help us feel elevated, move us from a state of fight or flight, which is our chronic state when we're living in an urban environment, um, to rest and digest. And also that our systems were able to recalibrate from a horm hormonal standpoint, right? 
if you're living in an urban environment, your adrenals are max, your cortisol levels are up. So I was looking at all the ingredients that could help sort of create levers around these things, not to trick or force them into a state, but to work with our internal system to facilitate uh, homeostasis and get you somewhere. Um, so th there were myriad ingredients. We threw the entire kitchen sink at it. We, we threw CBN, CBD, uh, THC, the whole gamut uh, to, to try and facilitate that naturally. We looked a lot at the endocannabinoid system. For us, it was <coughs> there's a glaring gap in the market. CBD seems to be filling that to a degree with uh, the, the promise of anti-inflammation. For us, it was let's focus on the brain. And so we triangulated using these functional botanics, adaptogens, and nootropics to get there. Took us 18 months to come back to the first formula. So we did like 25 renditions and went back to the first one that we invented, um, which of course means that it was divinely inspired. Uh, I'm convinced. Um, but we just tested it on ourselves, and then we spent the next six months in R&D with uh, grown-up uh, labs and um, uh, chemists and herbalists as well. Um, and yeah, and then we, we keep iterating. We keep changing. The, exper the big experiment continues uh, with our cus customers as our number one um, you know, focus groups. This doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> our recipe's been around for a long time. <laughs> Uh, our quick answer is um, we worked with a university, actually. Uh, you can get a highly discounted product development rate if you go to a university. Um, so we did that. It was very much driven by my own personal tastes. I tried to read some flavor trend reports, but like really, if you don't like cardamom, you're not going to want to have a cardamom beverage, you know? Um, and then finally, uh, the hardest ingredient, Every, I mean, I'm, the hardest ingredient for us was CBD. We probably sampled, interviewed over 80 CBD suppliers across North America and um, you know, had this like checklist of 25 things they had to meet in order for us to even ask for their samples. And then we'd get their samples and they said they were tasteless and odorless and non-cloudy and they were none of those things. So it was really like an iterative process, but um, it was all, honestly like a lot of Google research and asking people in the industry like, do you know a good CBD supplier? We cannot find one. Happy to say we ultimately landed on an organic hemp farm in Colorado, which is spectacular, so it worked out. But um, it's just like it takes so long. Product development just takes so long. But the, the working with a lab and a university was great, really great. Yes, here in the front. Um, so my understanding is the FDA is asking people to remove all CBD products, am I correct on that at the moment from? Uh, yes and no, They're, they have not yet approved CBD in food and beverage. They are asking companies that are making egregious claims to, to they're pulling, company, pulling products off shelf that make egregious, egregious claims. Their examples are that it cures cancer and Alzheimer's, so like. I see, so is it safe from your perspective um, and for an investor to invest in a CBD product that isn't making those claims. Like, there's no or minimal risk of it being yanked out of stores at this point. Uh, yeah, I don't. I don't think so. I mean, that's the bet we're taking, though. Like, it, it, and that's the bet all of our investors are taking. I think the ship has sailed. It's it's legal now with the farm bill, and so even if the FDA doesn't approve it, it it will likely get passed um, through Congress. It, it so it's not. Um, it, it, the FDA, as my lawyer always tells me, is not a legal body, they're an administrative body. 
so the Farm Bill legalized CBD. It just didn't know, it doesn't mean that it's allowed in food and beverage yet, but it will be allowed um, once they feel like they have enough studies to prove it. I personally believe that CBD is just being held to a higher bar because of its affiliation with cannabis. So the people are extra nervous about it. Hello, hi, I'm Carmen. I'm co-founder of Portenias. We uh, have a yerba mate um, establishment and we are now trying to move to hotel. So what I would like to ask you is a piece of advice. Um, Hilary, I mean, you come from uh, Harvard, you have the background of Chobani, uh, then Gina, you have Dicky Lee, and, <laughs> but I mean, and, and then, I know about uh, then <laughs> and then you have um, definitely not had uh, troubles um, finding funding. So uh, we are three founders, we're all women, yeah, but we're all women and we are uh, immigrants as well. And uh, we have found that it's very hard to find investors, even though we've been widely covered by the press. We had at least like 10 articles by, I don't know, Gothamis, uh, New York Magazine, etc., about Portenias. Yet uh, we don't know where to find investors um, that will help us uh, scale because we're ready to go to the supermarkets, both with dry leaves, with uh, beverages, uh, merchandising, everything. But where should we go? We, our background is not in business. My, uh, my wife, she's a dental surgeon. I'm an art curator. And the third partner, she's a chef, but lives in Argentina. So where should we start? Well, there's a great investor sitting at the end of this I panel. I feel like this is the place. <laughs> <laughs> name is Anu. <laughs> um, that's one. What kind of feedback are you getting when you pitch? What's the resistance? Well, we are now starting to pitch. Um, more than anything, it's because we are so new, and there's only one big player right now. It's uh, Waiyaki. Their um, revenue is 73 million per year, and we are just starting. So it's very hard for people to trust us because we don't have any background in business, I guess. That's what I've been feeling more than anything, because they don't tell you, oh, you don't have background in business. Um, this is what we have been receiving. Um, just... For starters, I mean, as Hillary mentioned, there are a ton of functional beverages that are emerging. I think if you differentiate that way, you can tell a story that, that resonates with what the market is looking for right now. But there's also a lot of great food and, and beverage incubators that have popped up over the years that I think would be worth checking out because, you know, even just your experience with them obviously will, will prove a track record um, and help you set some goals around the business that can, regardless of your background, um, you know, be uh, show an impressive um, track record for investors that are looking at at those types of numbers. Um, Chobani actually has a great one. Um, yeah, oh, you applied, okay, cool, fingers crossed. Um, and then networks like Food Tech Connect, my friend Mike Lee, they're, they're not too far from here, we work Food Labs, um, you know, supports a lot of new entrepreneurs and beverages, one category that they're looking at closely. I would say, um I mean, I don't. I, it's helpful to have a business background, but um, I think if I was an investor, I would want just. If you didn't have a business background, I would want to see that you were making good business decisions and that the business that you were building had the fundamental right aspects of what a good business should have. So that your, you know, for instance, your unit economics makes sense. That it, that you can eventually. What I mean by that is that the price that you're selling for makes sense that there's like consumer demand to buy your product at that price 
and that you can your costs might be three times what to the price of um, today, what they will be in a couple years, but that you know how to get those down and you can at least like foresee a path to getting those down. If you feel like you can't answer any of those questions and that's crazy, then I would probably bring someone in that has a business background um, and try to figure out whether or, not, whether or not that's like finding someone that's equally passionate about this and giving them equity. I've never been shy about that. Um, and if not a person full time, I would at least, the first thing I thought of is, I'd at least find like a, a someone to guide you through the capital raise process that could say, you know, I love your idea, I love your passion, I love the product, and I, um, I'll introduce you to everybody I know. Like, in, you know, probably is going to be a man, in fact, in that case. But like someone that will introduce you to like every investor that they know and really almost help you raise, mo help you raise money because they so believe in, in your idea. Yeah, I think, I mean, yes, I have Leaky, but I don't think I've gotten that much investment because of Leaky, I don't think celebrity um, has that same weight in these sorts of worlds, especially in something that's about you know heritage products coming from rural places. I think it almost has been a hindrance. Um, luckily, it's not an endorsement deal. It's actually like a real friendship, and we kind of all started it together. However, I think the times that I've been successful in raising money have been because people have become passionate, and I've made them disciples of Yola's vision and Yola's story and where she's coming from, and that's been very, very exciting for people. But I've had tons of issues with it, and I don't come from business background. None of us do. None of us came from the liquor industry. I mean, Yola has access to that in Mexico a little bit, but the American liquor industry was completely overheads three or four years ago. So um, we've had this crash course in it. But the one thing that I have learned through this process is that women are really excited to sisterly help each other and a lot of my like this this was a perfect example yeah, plan um i was here for you Phys you know i was just a little bit physical comedy we planned it no. um so i think finding people that believe in what you're trying to do and giving them a piece of it and making them feel like they're part of it people are want to be in together and be in communities and have things to do so if you find if you can find intelligent or experienced people that get on board with what you're doing and get them along for the ride, they're excited to contribute. And I think it's it's a psychological thing. I used to think that I was asking for something and now I realize I'm giving somebody a really amazing opportunity to be a part of a community and like a ride that we're on. And I feel like that with every one of the, my employees and I try to make it feel like we're this amazing family and we are. And I think like if you can find, and there's, this is a great room to start in, um, people that Get on, get on your ride with you, um, share it with them. Great, so it's actually eight o'clock, so, um, so we unfortunately have to end the Q&A, but um, our panelists are here, and um, as I said, you know, we have um, samples for you to try, so thank you so much thank to all you. three of you. Thanks this was amazing. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Um, and thank you to the audience.